last type, which is my favorite, and, and I'm happy to talk more about this in detail later, is, is what I call thesis fiction, uh, in which, without getting too grandiose uh, and making your characters total receptacles uh, rather than, than living beings, there was some kind of broader argument about uh, the world, human society, sociology, uh, etc., that you want to articulate using your story as a vehicle uh, for that broader theme. I am having so much fun interviewing writers. It's fascinating to see how they come up with their ideas, and it's no different with Nate. There are times when Nate's mic clips out, but the discussion is so good we had to release this episode. We talk about the joy and challenges of writing in Weird's World of Malifaux. We spend a good bit of time discussing the impact of understanding the history and culture of what you're writing about. For my Malifaux 10 Thunder players out there, we spent a lot of time talking about your faction. He gives some very valuable advice on how to break into the freelance writing business. And we talk about what are the real barriers and what are the barriers that writers create themselves. Anyway, we pull back the curtain. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my time with Mr. Wolf. Third Floor Wars delivers interviews, insights, and discussions about everything hitting the tabletop. Rule books, plastic models, dice, and cards in hand. Let the gaming begin. Tabletop games let you escape and unleash grand battles and regale epic tales of adventure with your friends. If you love gaming and learning from players, designers, experts, and creators, you are in the right place. Pull up a chair. Craig and Ray welcome you to the third floor and the Tabletop Talk Podcast. Craig here on the third floor. Today we're talking to freelance writer Nate Wolf. Now, those of you that are followers of Weird Games, whether you play Malifaux or you play Through the Breach, have likely read some of his work. So, Nate, welcome to the third floor. Hey, third floor community. Hope everybody's staying safe, healthy, and generally sane. Craig, it's fantastic to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, my pleasure. So, Nate, uh, now, uh, when I record uh, with my guests, we have video, even though obviously it's just for a podcast, but I think the video makes it a lot easier for us to have, you know, a conversation. You can pick up uh, visual clues and things like that as you're discussing. But the reason I bring that up is, one, Nate is in Taipei right now, um, so there's... Uh, the miracle of being able to you know do a podcast from halfway across the world <laughs> but two i see like a whole display case behind them all kinds of miniatures and things like that so nate i want to get an idea of how you discover tabletop gaming so uh at one point you knew, you didn't know you could throw dice and move models and then suddenly you found that out so how did you find tabletop gaming yeah, it's been a it's been a long journey for me. When when I was a kid, I I loved building things with my hands. I started out with Legos, eventually ended up with Gundam model kits. And when I was in nice. sixth grade, yeah, no, it was sweet. I I had a really good friend who had been playing the Lord of the Rings strategy battle game from GW. Was a huge fan of the movies, and he took me to the uh, the GW store on the Upper East Side in New York City, uh, which is where I was born. And so it's been I've a been to that GW store. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I'm, I'm sad that it's no longer there anymore. Um, it was really a fantastic community, but uh, I got to say it's been it's been all downhill from there. So I started out with Lord of the Rings, kind of escalated up to to 40k and fantasy. Went through a pretty hardcore war machine phase and then just couldn't handle the migraines. So I was very, very happy when when I discovered Malifaux. Uh, I've also been playing a bit of Infinity and Kingdom Death. So 
I like to dabble. I, I got to admit, I'm not a very competitive player, but I really enjoy just the narrative experience uh, and, and throwing down with friends and having a few beers. So uh, it give, brings me a lot of joy. I had more than a few years and thousands of dollars uh, spent on uh, the Middle Earth game. Uh, it's a good game. I think it's uh, one of the best games that uh, they ever put out. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. It um, And it was funny, and I didn't know this. Um, it was what they did is, um, I don't know, like early days, like back when it was just Citadel. I don't think it was even Games Workshop. Apparently, they had a Wild West mini game that they put out. Um, and I found several years later that that the uh, Middle Earth game was a reskin of it. So if you if you can go, you can look on the Internet. I'll, uh, maybe I'll put a link in the show notes. You can see the original rules, which um, have all of the same rules as the Middle Earth game. So they really just reskinned a Western game. Uh, but it, it's a good rule set. The, the uh, objectives and stuff ought to get kind of tedious after a little while. But uh, the games themselves are well. You mentioned you played um, uh, Warbler Hordes, and um, we had a whole episode on people you know, uh, migrating from uh, War Machine over to Malifaux. Did you find yourself in that same position? You know, I did. I, I have to say, I'm I, I'm a huge Sigmar Signar player. Uh, absolutely love the Swans. Love my love my Tesla and my Voltaic energy. Um, and I, I think it's a fantastic game system. And I had a really great group of friends that I was playing with. But uh, I have to admit, it was nice to play something that was equally tactical and equally intense, but on a much smaller scale. Yeah. Uh, and I found that, you know, a good game of Malifaux can still take you a couple hours, especially, you know, full 50 soul stones, you're, you're in the zone. Uh, right. But but it was nice that because something was smaller, it was easier to transport. I could play a few more games uh, in a night with with my group of friends as well. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I still love PP. You know, they've got great staffers, super nice. I've chatted with them at Gen Con. Uh, and I hope yeah. one way to one day to, to kind of migrate back. I think part of it is also just the community. Um, I'm out in Taipei right now uh, where, uh, you know, Games Workshop is really the, the main game people are playing. So, uh, you know, that's what I've been playing because it's what everybody else plays. But uh, sure. I will I will get to Infernals at some point uh, if my wallet can handle it. <laughs> that's funny. Now, I um, have seen the models for Kingdom Death and I've heard really good things about it, but I've never played it. So what is it that you like about Kingdom Death? You know what I think it does is it it really nails the intensity and intimacy of a good RPG session set in a pretty dynamic survival horror universe, but it adds a board game element to it that's frankly it's quite complex uh, but it's yeah. not so complex that it's overwhelming i think it really hits that sweet spot between fiction and reality where you don't feel like you're acting everything out but there are a bunch of just ridiculous things that can happen to you um the game is dynamic it is brutal it's ruthless uh and it's it's collaborative uh also right. and so no matter how much it punishes you you know there's nothing quite like getting into that monster fight with your friends barely coming out by the scraps of your fingernails from from turn to turn right and it, it's a it's a lengthy campaign too. It, it takes 25 sessions, 30 sessions wow. to, to get through a full lantern year, I think. So it's a nice way to, to also keep the gaming group together. And uh, back when I was in Boston, we had a regular crew of, of other friends of mine come over once a week and, and throw down. So I do miss that. How much table space does it take? I've never got a sense. I mean, the models are good size models, but how, how big is like the board and stuff for it? So this is funny, but I, I recently just moved into into uh, a new apartment. And as my first quote unquote uh, adult purchase, I'm, I'm now a Ph.D. student. I graduated from college a few years ago. I, I got myself a 
uh, a Jasper gaming table from BoardGameTables.com precisely nice. because my current dining table could not handle um, the dimensions required for that game. Um, Isn't that funny? Yeah. So, you know, it's not like a, a whole four by four thing that, you know, you would need for, for most war games, but it's the board is pretty robust. I would think it's probably three by two. But what's crazy oh, okay. is there are different boards for different phases of the game. And it really saves you setup time because it can take about an hour, uh, you know, to, to set up and pack away. Um, right. If you can have everything out on one table, because what you do is, you know, you, you create this entire village of your survivors. Right. And that in and of itself requires, you know, dozens of cards and, and places to replicate uh, different different areas of your settlement. Um, and then there's the hunt track for when you're hunting the monster. And then there's the three die by two showdown when you actually fight it, where most of the game takes place. So anyways, this is a long way of just saying if you have everything out together, it's yeah, yeah it, it can get quite uh, quite large. So the, when you're doing the final battle on the, with a monster, um, is there an AI built into the into the board game that that handles that? Yeah, I, I think one of the most innovative things about KDM uh, is the AI deck, in which uh, it basically, if, if I'm remembering this correctly, because it's been a couple months since I played, but but you know that that represents the wounds for the monster, and so every time you hurt it, you remove a card at random from that deck, and then once all the cards are gone, you got you got to hurt it one more time to finally kill it. And so uh -huh. it does really quite react, um, you know, to how much damage it takes. It limits the number of options that the monster takes. And you hope that if you can hit it in a really brutal way, um, you can remove multiple of the worst possible <laughs> threat reactions. But the deck also has things called trap cards, which when you hurt the monster, the monster's playing dead and you flip the trap card and it basically means your party's really screwed for a turn. So it's, Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah it, keeps, it keeps things fun. So there's a deck that dictates the monster's moves and plays. Correct. And when you injure it, it that's cool. That's a cool mechanic. It it uh, it really works. Yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 fantastic. I'm I'm eagerly waiting for. I think it's the third round of the Kickstarter now with the, with the much promised uh, list of like 10, 15 new monsters. So I'm um, I'm excited for when that day finally comes. Yeah, hey, will you have time to put out a second mortgage by the yes. time that Kickstarter comes out? Honestly, that's, that sounds about right. Well, I gotta, I'm glad I get to write it. Helps pay the bills. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So, guys, this Insider Insight series allows me to talk to developers, designers, artists, writers, and industry insiders about the creative process and how they approach their work. Today, my hope is uh, to talk to Nate and get an idea of what his inspirations are, how he does his research, how he works with clients and editors, and how he can create compelling stories. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we get back from a break, we're going to find out how Nate became a writer. We'll be right back. There are so many online retailers. It can be hard to find one that is trustworthy, has great prices, along with some reliable customer service. On the third floor, we love ordering our gaming goodies from Gadzooks Gaming. Their selection of terrain, miniatures, dice, custom decor, and conversion bits are curated for gamers by gamers. You'll find they have what you need and what you didn't know you needed to take your gaming fun to the next level. If you mention Third Floor Wars in the cart notes of your order, you'll also get a free gift. And you'll help support the podcast. Check out gadzooksgaming.com and mention Third Floor Wars on checkout to get that free gift.
So I'm always fascinated, um, especially when I talk to artists and writers. We've had a couple writers on the show, Nate, and uh, 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 by this time, uh, the uh, episode with Alyssa has come out, who uh, does a lot of the art for Weird. Oh, fantastic. And it, yeah, it's fantastic. It's really fascinating to me um, because a lot of people listening have written. A lot of people listening have, you know, drawn pictures. But at some point... Um, for some people becomes more than just, you know, doing it as a hobby. So let's go back in time, Nate. Was there a moment that you could think of when you decided, well, first, when you enjoyed writing? Yeah, you know, to be honest, it's it's for for as long as I can remember. Um, I think I wrote my first stories when I was in first grade. I had a really supportive teacher who used to give me this lined paper. It was double spaced so that toddlers could write on it. And every other page had a big blank box so you could illustrate your stories. Nice. And, and some of the earlier earliest memories I had was, uh, I can't believe she put up with me, but she let me write these stories. And I used to write them about my classmates. And once every couple of weeks, uh, she would have all the kids sit in a circle and um, she let me practice reading them uh, to, the, to the kids. That's so cool. I, yeah, yeah, no, it was fun. So I, I've always, I've always enjoyed writing. Um, but it wasn't something I was, I was totally engaged with, to be honest. I, I completely started almost on a, on a whim um, when I joined the, the weird online forums. And this must have been it's my senior year of high school, so around 2012, 2013, um, and, and discovered the great online community and, of course, the writing room. And so I, I did what most nerds did, which was I, I started writing fanfic right after, uh, right after Storm of Shadows came out. Um, so I think that's that's where I started. So what prompted that, though, Nick? Because there's a lot of people that have gone to those forums that haven't written a single word. There was something that made you say, you know, I, I want to write in this world. And what was that? What, what what prompted you to write your first story for the forum? For me, it was the moment that uh, they released the artwork for Mei Feng, uh, you know, the first time that the Thunders became their own faction. And I saw this fantastic 19th century uh, you know, railroad aesthetic that told this altar story, right, of, of, of Chinese immigrants who were coming into a new place, right, uh, to contribute to a society that for a long time had rejected people who were different. And, and, and I, I was growing up in, in, in Taiwan. And so these kinds of histories, you know, for me, my, my family and my own connection to the Thunders is is really quite personal. Uh, my mother was sure. born in Taiwan. She immigrated to the States uh, when she turned 16. My grandma grew up here uh, under the Japanese occupation. And so those wow. kinds of stories have, have been my stories. And, and you know, I, I speak the language. I can read and write uh, conversationally and, and do research in Mandarin. So um, I think I saw a bit of myself uh, and a bit of, of my family in, in that kick-ass artwork of her going yeah. on top of some rail beams with that, with that mantis pose. So anyways, to, to, to bring this to a, to a close, I um, the first fanfic I ever write, wrote was, wow, I, I wanted to write something about this character. And so you can find it on the forums. I'm embarrassed to say it's probably still there. It is not canon and is not in any way, shape or form <laughs> official. But there was a story that I was writing called The Dragon's Eye about a young version of Mei Feng growing up in occupied Peking uh, underneath guild rule. Uh, searching for a soul stone called the Dragon's Eye. Um, Interesting. So that was my first foray. It's terrible. So what happened in the story, man? You got to tell me about the story. Oh, man. Well, the story focuses on a, a street urchin named Kai Lee, for whom the big reveal would be that this would eventually become an adult Mei Feng. 
Uh, and it's the Lunar New Year, and she's in the city when uh, all of a sudden uh, there is a guild contingent led by the one and only Lucius Matheson uh, that raids the Imperial Treasury searching for this stone. Uh, and in the meantime, there were some side threads going on uh, with the Hungering Darkness and with um, Mr. Graves and Mr. Tannen, who at the time were not called those names. I called them Lumen and Lux. Um, nice and uh, seeking uh, their master, whose essence was indeed in this stone. And as you can tell, this is crazy and not canon and, and nuts. Um, but, oh, sure, sure, sure. But sure. you got to start somewhere. <laughs> so, yeah. so that was my story. And Sonya Creed was also on a kind of on a side quest. And so I read a lot of the Malifaux books, and I loved how, you know, this George R. R. Martin style of writing where you switch between characters and you, you stop right at a pivotal moment. Uh, that was something I wanted to practice. Uh, and then, of course, the Katanakas also had to be involved, too. So, Of course, of course. So you you published that online, and obviously people read it. Um, what were some of the uh, initial reactions? Well, you know, I think that the reactions were, were largely positive. But where, where I really started to engage even more with the community was through the Iron Quill contests that were run uh, by a henchman uh, named Jonathan Boynton uh, Edenil on the forums. Jonathan, if you're listening, I owe you a huge thank you because uh, he was the one who, who encouraged me to, to reach out to Weird. But, you know, they, they I don't know if they still do this, but they did these monthly fanfic contests called the Iron Quill in which there were three secret ingredients and you had 1500 words. Uh, and every month, you know, you would write a story and the winners of each contest would then contribute to picking the themes for the next month's story. That's kind of cool. Uh, yeah, no, it was, it was super nerdy, but, but what was great was it was really a community process. I mean, Jonathan took it very seriously. He gave positive feedback to every entrant. Part of the, the requirement for participating was commenting on other people's entries and helping them grow as writers. And so, you know, to make a long story short, I ended up um, winning a few of these contests back to back. Uh, I had a, I had a bit of a streak going, uh, which I'm very grateful for. And so Jonathan just hit me up and said, hey, look, you you seem to have an act for this. Why don't you reach out to, to Weird and see uh, if you can write to them for real? And so at this point, I was a college freshman, you know, writing out of my dorm room. And sure. Yeah. And I had sent a message to uh, I think it was to Justin at the time. And I said, hey, can I maybe submit something to Chronicles? I sent them a writing sample. And what I did not expect was to get an email back that said, hey, Nathan really likes this. We want you to write for the upcoming book. And I thought, oh, my God. Yes, 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 yes. yes. OK. Uh, and I haven't looked back. So it's been a great eight years with Weird. It's been a, a fantastic partnership. And uh, yeah. God, that's crazy. Um, So. I mean, at that point, I mean, that's a quick, relatively quick, you know, introduction to becoming a quote unquote paid professional writer. I'd be curious in the, you know, the decade since when you just were goofing around, putting up fanfic, to, <laughs> you know, to actually writing published work. What has changed the most for you as an artist? That's a that's a really good question. First, I want to say I'm flattered you call me an artist. I, I have to admit, I never I never thought that I would accumulate enough talent in in, in anything <laughs> remotely artistic that somebody would ever use that that noun to describe me. So thank you very much, Craig. You're I, welcome. Uh, what has changed the most? Um, two things. One, I 
think uh, I have a wider toolbox of, of themes, ideas, and narrative styles to draw upon than, than I had in the past. And I'm happy to talk a little bit about that, you know, in terms of, of what those tools are a little later when, when it's time. Uh, so that's the first thing. And then the second thing is, and weird earlier editors of the Weird team who were so patient with me, uh, you know, I worked with with Justin and Aaron before I started working with Kyle because it's been it's been a long run. Uh, yeah, they will they will tell you my dialogue was terrible. Oh my god, it was bad. It was cringeworthy bad uh, in my earliest pieces, uh, as was my excessive use of adverbs. Um, and so <laughs> I'd like to think that I've curbed some of my worst instincts uh, in, in no small part, thanks to uh, thanks to all the editorial oversight I've had with that team. Um, so so I think that's it's humorous, but it's actually true. I think the way my characters talk, there's a little less exposition, and I hope it feels a little bit more organic than it did starting out. But I still got my moments. <laughs> Well, and good and good feedback has a huge impact, right? Especially if you have the ability to absorb it and 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 utilize it. Sometimes it's hard to, right? It's hard to take feedback and 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 make it a tool. Um, oh, for to sure. Use. You know, and, and to be fair, as, as as a writer, right, what you hand in is very personal. And even though you have to yeah. remember you are working with somebody's IP and that they those characters have been circulating in the minds of your editors long before they are ever shared with you, but but yep. you still have a part of yourself uh, in there. And so learning to kind of roll with the, with the punches, never, not that they're ever punches, they're always constructive, right? But, but I, you know, that, that takes time too. So I'd be curious, outside of feedback, has there been any resources that you have utilized in this time to, to improve your writing? You know, that's a really good question. I think the best thing to do, to be totally honest, is to just read, read, yeah. read, 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 uh, and read a lot. Uh, and for me, I, I've got a series of my favorite sci-fi books. I think at the top of the list that I've really enjoyed have to be Brandon Sanderson's Mistborn Saga. Uh, nice. Absolutely fantastic uh, and just truly epic in in every sense of the word. Uh, eagerly awaiting the, the the fourth book of the second part of that 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 uh, that sequence. But um, like the rest of the world, uh, but as well as uh, there's a Chinese author named uh, Liu Cixing who has written a, a story called The Three-Body Problem, which is an epic uh, trilogy, uh, Santi in Mandarin, about uh, human-alien relations uh, and trying to find one's place in the universe uh, despite imminent destruction and doom. So I've, I've read a lot of good stories that that have influenced my writing. And then above all, there's, there's the material that's put out by other writers uh, on the Weird team. I mean, yeah. you know, this seems like a solitary exercise, but frankly, it is a massive collaborative enterprise. I'm not the only contractor out there. I mean, you yeah. know, Weird probably has a, at, at one point we had a dozen people, uh, you know, tossing around ideas. And and so I've got all the faction books. I've 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 read them carefully, I hope. Um, and, uh, you know, whenever I just want to figure out how to how to show rather than how to tell or how to give a character a particular voice that's consistent with something amazing that somebody else has always written. I can always go there. Yeah, definitely. Now is, um, I'd be curious cause I, I, I'm, I'm a Luddite. I only know English and I can barely speak Spanish. Um, I'd be interested as somebody who digests fiction, both in Mandarin as well as English and, you know, you for you to have a love of, you know, some English writers as well as a Mandarin writer like that, how different is the storytelling styles? Is is language, the actual language it's written in have an impact in the in the style of writing? I think I, I, absolutely. Uh, I, I do want to preface this by saying that uh, the translations of Three Body Problem that I've read have been the English editions by by Ken Liu, who is a very well known oh, okay. um, sci fi translator who I think has has translated multiple works from from, from Mandarin authors. But I've read interviews. I think that that he's done, um, and 
you know, I think the translator has a really important job because language conveys so much that is unsaid. Exactly. Um, and so uh, the the answer to your question is is yes. Although I will say that the most interesting thing about reading fiction that comes from another culture, and particularly fiction that's on such an epic scale that also takes place in our world, but a fictional version yeah. of it, is to think about a, prot a protagonist who comes from a background that is completely different from my own, right? In a fictional world in which it's not the United States, but it's China that is yeah. leading the forefront, uh, you know, to save off uh, uh, an alien invasion. And and that uh, that kind of perspective, I think, has been extremely valuable for me um, in, in, in thinking about how I see the protagonists within the Ten Thunders and the worldview that they come from, right, right versus right. someone from the Guild. Although the last thing I will say is that, you know, language obviously has power. And I think what's fantastic about Ken Liu's translation is he... He really captures the subtlety and the nuance of Chinese in the sense that there are many expressions, we call them meaning they're four character phrases, you know, uh -huh. that are idiom, idiomatic expressions that capture complex ideas. Like, um, you know, what is one of them like, like killing the chicken to warn the dogs or something like that. The idea of right, having a scapegoat or, or something along those right. lines. Um, and, and I think his his translations really do speak to that. So I would recommend people people definitely check out Three Body Problem um, if they love if they love hard science fiction. Um, well, but, but that's anyways, cool yeah. that you that you feel like the translations are strong because, um, you know, there's there's been more than a few times where I've talked to people that, you know, that they say, you know, I've read it in the native language, but don't bother with the translation because it's missed. It will never be feel like, the same, but that's not always a bad thing. Right. Right, right, but it, but it sounds like that this guy has done a good job uh, of capturing a lot of that, which is which is very very cool. Um, so I had, um, and it, by the time we're recording this, it hasn't been released yet. Um, I had uh, an episode with Mari Takuda, who is another writer in the stable, and um, uh, it was very interesting to talk to her about um, her time working with Weird and kind of that process. So what we're going to do is take a quick break, and we're going to go through it the same thing with Nate. I want to find out what it's like to work with the editors at Weird, what it's like to write in that universe, um, to find stories that uh, ends up allowing you to contribute to the world itself. So we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. Howdy friends, Craig here. You deserve a new playmat. Here on the third floor, we use mats by Mars. They are scratch resistant, waterproof, wet erase marker compatible, almost free of glare and lighter than neoprene. Mats by Mars gives you over 40 designs to choose from. You pick a mat, pick a design, and then you pick an overlay, like one for Marvel Crisis Protocol, Star Wars Legion, or even Malifaux 3rd Edition. Those overlays will really speed up your deployment and make the placement of objective markers so easy. Use our promotion code in the show notes to get a 10% discount on your first order. In the notes of your order, you can even request the third floor logo on your mat for free. That makes the best mat in the business even a little better. So get some new mats, save yourself some money, and help support the show. Go to matsbymars.com. All the details are in the show notes, including the discount code. So it's one thing, Nate, to sit down and, you know, you're in a form, you're not writing canon, you could literally do anything you want, say that Sonya Crid killed Lucius, do whatever, right? And, and you have that freedom. But once you're commissioned to to contribute to canon, once you're commissioned to, to, to do something that's going to show up in published weird 
weird books and become a part of it forever, which is a pretty crazy thing when you think about it. Um, you have certain limitations that are put on you. So I, I'd like for you to go back. Um, what was the first what was the first thing you had published for weird? What was the first story? I think my first stories would have been, uh, it was the summer of 2014, and it was the two of my stories that appeared in Crossroads. So it was uh, the Lucius piece, the portrait, uh, and the McCabe piece, the black sheep. God, those are both really good stories, dude. Oh, I'm, glad, I'm glad you yours. enjoyed them. The, the Lucius yeah. piece was, was a good example of excessive adverbs. Well, so I'm glad you pulled yeah, it. Let's, let's talk about that. Uh, talk about that, because that's a great story. How was it, pre- how was it presented to you? Um, did you pitch it to them? Did they come to you and say, here's what, like, well, I have no idea what that, how that starts. Yeah. You know, it was, it was my, my first ever series of commissions was, was incredibly flexible. Um, you know, for me, stories typically start of out of one out of three ways. Um, and, uh, you know, the first is a, is a straightforward linear narrative in which the editorial team will give me a specific way that they want the Malifaux universe to move forward. And they will articulate the characters that they want involved in that process uh, and, and how they, in their minds, at least envision the next chapter going. Uh, the next type of piece is a challenge piece. Uh, when you, as an artist, kind of want to try something weird, uh, pun intended, and and yeah. that that has just been on your mind uh, and you want to think about it. And then the last type, which is my favorite, and, and I'm happy to talk more about this in detail later, is, is what I call thesis fiction, uh, in which without getting too grandiose uh, and making your characters total receptacles uh, rather than, than living beings, there was some kind of broader argument about uh, the world, human society, sociology, uh, et cetera, that you want to articulate using your story as a vehicle uh, for that broader theme. So the the Lucius piece was a, was a challenge piece. So when, when, when Crossroads uh, was in the planning process, and this was maybe about eight months before the book came out, um, they, there were no uh, guardrails at all, actually. I mean, they basically said, look, you can't kill characters off. Um, but other than that, you know, stick to established canon, but, but really write the masters the way you want them. And I think there were about six or seven of us on the team uh, and there were a whole host of masters and each of us got to pick two or three of our favorites. We divvied them up. It was quite civil actually. And the only guideline was write a story about your favorite master, which was no kidding. No, I kid you not. At least, and it was it was it was a dream come true. So the Lucius piece was an example of what I describe as a challenge piece, in which you know, second edition Lucius, I know he plays very different in third edition now, or maybe not so different, but right, it yep. was all about orders and all about hidden snipers, uh, and you know, you weren't going around walking up to people and smacking them with a sword cane because if you did, that was bad. Um, so I wanted to write a piece in which I kept violence to a minimum, but the threat of violence and menace, you know, that, that Lucius could communicate simply by taking a walk action, right? I wanted that to be front and center in the story. And so some of the, my, my favorite pieces I've ever read are stories that are written uh, in the structure of plays in which you have a limited number of characters and a confined space with very few set pieces and not a lot of action, but it's the right. force of the dialogue or some kind of inner mystery that carries the story forward. And so the Lucius piece was was one in which I challenged myself where, I mean, people die, right? Poor Herman gets his head smoked out in a fireplace and, and Niccolo gets poisoned and that sucks to be them. But, but I wanted the threat of violence to be more real than the violence itself and the mystery of Lucius, because this was his big reveal as a, as a dual dual master for, for Neverborn. Right. Um, I wanted something suitably Edgar Allan Poe-esque. And, and frankly, I don't think I would have come up with the idea if I hadn't been given this blank slate to just write. 
So do you so you find out you're going to write for Lucius, right? You make some decisions that you wanted to make it uh, play like with 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 confined spaces and set pieces. Do you outline it at that point or like what's the first draft look like or what is it? What does it structurally look like early? Yeah, that's a good question. So it varies from, from story to story, usually with challenge pieces in which I'm inspired by an idea. Um, I start out by describing a moment that inspired me to write the whole story in the first place. And for me, I thought, okay, well, if this is a play, where do I want it to be set? Of course, it has to be in some guild rich dude's parlor downtown, uh, you know, with his luxurious carpets from the Three Kingdoms. And, um, you know, the, in the sample piece, I, I stole some of the language from the, the writing sample I had sent to, uh, to, to Nathan when I was first applying for the job in which there was this room of, of guild bureaucrats, uh, all incredibly wealthy and suitably evil, uh, and, uh, you know, eating creme brulee that had been burnt with a soul stone torch, uh, just thinking that a human life had paid for their dessert. Um, yeah. And so there were things like that that I wanted to, to communicate. Um, and uh, so the piece started there. But, but other pieces do have an outline, but the challenge is that often... If you outline a piece ahead of time too much, you end up with what I affectionately refer to as Game of Thrones Season 7 and Season 8 Syndrome, in which right. you have these turning points and these transformations you want your characters to engage in, but the time period leading up to those points as you try to check boxes feel rushed, so the, the, the transformation is not organic. Um, so right. I think that there's a balance between both of them. Um, but the Lucia story started out with a moment. I just sat down for an hour and I thought... How do I describe this room? Who who are my characters and who is Niccolo? Um, and as readers of that story know, you know, there's a whole like three paragraphs dedicated to the wallpaper and to the fireplace. And that's that's where that came from. Gotcha. Gotcha. So if I were to go back um, and forensically read that first version that you submitted, uh, Nate, and compare it to what was published in Crossroads, what changed? That's a good question. Uh, fewer adverbs uh, and, and slightly better dialogue. Uh, but uh, that, that, that was one thing. Um, I think that there were there were a couple other things. There were some transitional scenes that got cut in which Niccolo, who uh, is, of course, the painter and the protagonist of that story, uh, is exploring the guild enclave. And so there were a couple paragraphs where he enters, you know, to this imposing room with, I think, a great marble staircase and a chandelier and checkered tiles on the floor. And uh, and he kind of goes up. Uh, so some of that got cut. But I actually have to admit, um, you know, Justin, who was who was the editor at the time working with me on that piece, really liked it. Uh, and I'm grateful that he just kind of let me, let me run with it. Uh, and, uh, and, and that piece, I think out of any that I have submitted thus far had the fewest number of changes. Nice. So how about the McCabe story, the black sheep story, where did that start from? And, and how did that come together? Indiana Jones? No, uh, I kid you yeah. not. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, but, but especially at the, uh, at, at the very end, uh, of course, you know, Karen, Karen, his fiance, Karen Allen, right. Um, but, but uh, you know, at the end, I, I was struggling really hard not to have him write, don't look at it, Miriam. Um, but no, I, I think that that story, that, that was a bit of a struggle, actually. Um, in a way, that was a challenge piece, too, because uh, people who have read that story know that it is a nonlinear narrative in which uh, Yamaziko is interviewing McCabe, who has just been uh, released from custody. Um, and my goal for that piece was, was really two things. The first was uh, I wanted to explore Earthside London. Uh, and I think that that I had been told that that was where McCabe came from. Uh, and, and Earthside, before the other side was released, was really this this mysterious sphere on the fringes of our perception, right? Because yeah. Malfo universe was growing and changing. And it always weirdly Earth was the frontier that we had not touched. 
Uh, and I was eager, particularly given my own my own passion for international history, uh, to to really kind of dig my claws in there and, and try to leave a mark of what of what London might look like. So that was part of the impetus for the piece. Uh, but the other was again a challenge to try to write a piece that was told using a non nonlinear time uh, time framing device, uh, and that was also told through an interview of two people who had no reason to trust one another and who were highly suspicious. Yeah, yeah. So. Um... You write those pieces, you put them out, you know, they become part of canon. Do you, what is the process then for you? I mean, do you just find yourself consuming as much canon material as it is? So you read everything else everybody's writing to kind of keep up to speed and keep alive with the stories? Or how do you kind of track, you know, what's in bounds and what's out of bounds? Uh, you develop kind of a sixth sense. And I think that that comes from, uh, you know, cultivating a, a relationship with your editors and understanding how the weird team designs their own characters. I mean, of course, um, you know, we, we do read as much as possible um, and, and it's good stuff, right? So it's not exactly yeah. an honor's task. You know, I, I, I got my copy of the Explorer Society book and um, I, I, I read the story round table and I was like, Matt Majuricon, you are amazing. You yeah, you know, I, I I created Gretchen and Ludwig having no idea that Weird would take them as far as they did. He wrote those sure. characters better than I did, and I was like, That's "Damn, awesome. this is really good." Um, so it's just, it's a real pleasure. But, but, but back to the main point. Um, yeah, I I think the more that I've I've had an opportunity to to work with Weird, the the more I've understood what their own expectations for their IP are. Um, and although I'm I'm not you know with them in any official capacity, um, that right. vision I think has has become very clear to me. Um, and you just sort of develop a gut instinct uh, about what you think is appropriate and what you think isn't. And it's a hard balance to strike sometimes because the whole purpose of good creative writing, right, is to take people out of a world uh, into a world that is totally illusory and not real. But that world is still governed by laws and expectations that are created by its innovators. Um, right. Right. There's still rules, right? There's still rules, even though it's fantastic. Yeah. 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 And, yeah, and, and definitely. You know, usually you have a good sense of if something's coming totally out of left field, for example, in which you have a character make a decision that seems completely at odds with with something that they've done in the past. Or, you know, I think most of our characters have extremely distinct personalities. Um, you know, Seamus is a sociopath. You shouldn't expect him to show any form of compassion in the same way that Orville, Abbas, a a Orville Agassiz is, is like the one nice person uh, in the Malifaux universe. And you wouldn't expect him to ever act like he has woken up on the wrong side of the bed, even though there is obviously, uh, you know, daily fires for him to put out. So I think it's just uh, a question of, of becoming familiar. Uh, and, and you want your characters to grow, right? You don't want them to always be yeah. the same but you don't want them to be making shifts that seem unrealistic. And, and I've gotten a better sense of what that is just from, from years of, of, of Nathan's comments, of, of Kyle's comments, of, of Aaron's comments and Justin's comments before then. So, I mean, it's, you're, you're obviously passionate about the universe as, as many of my listeners, right? We love, you know, people, people that listen, a lot of them play Malifaux, a lot of them play through the breach. Um, and, you know, when I first came across Malifaux, uh, I, I snickered a little bit at the world until I started reading the, the stories. I'm oh, like, it's wow, ridiculous. This world is yeah. This world's and amazing. It totally works. I'd, I'd be curious to know from your perspective, um, what is it that, that we love so much about Malifaux? Like it, it's, it's not a hundred percent original. It's very derivative, but it, but it, it is, there's nothing like it at the same time. So like if someone knew it was just like, you know, what is this Malifaux stuff? How do you explain it to somebody? 
Yeah, I, uh, I I used to to do demos at Gen Con, so th this was this was a standard part of the of the elevator pitch. Um, but you know, I, I think in my view, right, Malifaux is an extremely unique combination of steampunk, Victorian horror, uh, and East Asian mythology uh, that seamlessly blends together to create an alternate Earth uh, set in the 19th century, uh, in which there are no rules and the limits of possibilities extend only to what uh, what one's magical talents uh, impose on them. And so, you know, I, I think the the diversity within that universe is actually what what makes it, in my view, so special. Because everybody, no matter what genre they're coming from, finds a part that they can be attached to. Right? I know plenty of players who picked up Malifaux because they they don't have a thing for steampunk, but they love Bayou Gremlins. Right? Like that's right. that's just you know little green dudes riding chickens. Why not? Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which is great. But I think also for me, there were so many stories, particularly given my own East Asian heritage. You know, what's so wonderful about the Thunders is that uh, and, and, and I think this is also true about Abyssinia and about so many other other uh, other uh, factions that, that have been integrated into whether it's the other side or or Malfoy itself. You know, the world is a big place. And frankly, your world is far more realistic when you include these other chunks of, of of the population. I mean, it's not very interesting if, you know, this isn't even an ethical issue for me. It's just purely, it's, it's, it's a fun issue, right? Yeah. Thinking about yeah, more, more stories. Um, yeah, exactly. More yeah, stories exactly. that, 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 that should be told. Um, and I think everybody can find something that they are particularly passionate about to, to latch onto. I mean, like I said, with Mei Feng, that's how I started. Now I'd be curious, um, you can be cynical sure. and look at the 10 thunders as being uh, somewhat stereotypical, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, and a stereotype of, of, a, of a culture and a heritage, but it would appear that you don't feel that way at all. Or do you feel that it's um, you like to subvert that if it's there? Uh, I subvert it uh, frequently, actually. I, and I hope that that readers recognize that. I think some of the dialogue in the three riddles in a trader piece in the latest 10 thunders faction book uh, my purpose was really to to let my readers know that you know I'm part of a, a part of the community that I write about. Um, those stories are are more than stories to me. They are part of my own family's history, uh, and you know I'm really proud to say that uh, I've lived in Taipei for a long time. I was born in New York City, but uh, I grew up overseas here. Went back to the states for college, but then did a master's degree in Beijing. Spent a lot of time traveling in East Asia, um, and I have family living both in Taiwan and in Japan. Uh, you know, and I'm proud to say that, um, you know, most of my 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 uh, my work, uh, I, I'm not a full time freelance writer. Uh, I'm, I'm actually an academic researcher. I study the history and politics of that region. And I'm, I'm proud to say I've been to every single country in East and Southeast Asia, except for obviously wow. North Korea, Myanmar, Malaysia and Brunei. Um, so. Uh, there, there is a good faith effort, I think, on my part, uh, and I've had several uh, conversations with members of my of my community who feel really, really strongly about this. Um, but, but let me say this: uh, in, in terms of navigating that space uh, and talking about the, the Ten Thunders as a stereotype, um, I think the thing you have to remember about historical fiction is you are trying to strike a balance between two poles on the same spectrum. And the first pole is obviously the world we live in, and then the next one is the pole of wild fantasy. And there is a Goldilocks spot somewhere on that spectrum, right, that encapsulates an interesting blend between what is real and what is impossible that the reader can immerse themselves in and enjoy precisely 
because it is fictitious and precisely because it could never happen in the real world. And, you know, the challenge is that we can't divorce personal meaning from the events we experience, right? History is important. Different, different moments mean different things to different people. Um, it's the basis of national identity, cultural heritage, conceptions yep. of the self and the other. I mean, we can, this is really more of an academic conversation than, than a hobby one. But, you know, the idea is that every time you abstract the real world, you present a simplified model of what's going on, and you're not going to ever truly capture the nuance of living uh, and being in somebody else's shoes. But your hope is that that abstraction serves a greater purpose to reveal something interesting about the story you are trying to tell in the world you are trying to create. Uh, and in my case, I think that the the blending together of various East Asian cultures, particularly China and Japan, but of also, of course, Korea and Vietnam, uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, elsewhere, right? All of these things come together, um, not so much to emphasize the sameness between them, but to right. create tensions that result from a consequence of that blend that frankly make for way more interesting stories than if we were to just acknowledge that that those things were there. And that that's the basis of, of what's splitting the thunders right now. I think yep. people have been reading my, my pieces. Yeah. So, and it's fascinating to me because, I mean, to a large degree, and this is where it gets into how important it is to get uh, different voices in the process of, of putting out content. Right. Um, it's something that I firmly have believed for a long time and, you know, slowly but surely we're starting to see more and more of it, but it, it'll never be enough. I'd be interested for you. Have you I'm trying to think how to word this, Nate? So give me just a second. Yeah. When you read when you read somebody writing about Mei Fang or or the Ten Thunders who does not have the cultural background and experiences that you do. Um, do you have thoughts about that? Do you have concerns about that? Do you think it's important that, that it comes from a, 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 a I don't want to say qualified, maybe that's the best way to put it. A, a certain qualified voice is important for writing that type of stuff, or is it just another way to look at it and do it? Well, that's a good question, right? Because on, on the one hand, and there, there is no easy answer, right? On the one hand, if you have somebody who isn't as familiar writing about the world, right, there are things that seem so unrealistic that they can take players out of the moment, right? And obviously, right. that's that's not something that, that we want. Uh, but on the other hand, if it were true that we were only, quote unquote, allowed to write about the places that we grew up in, uh, or research the places. I mean, I'm an academic that studies East Asia, right? Uh, it, right. I, I was born in New York City. Does that mean that uh, I'm any less quote unquote uh, Asian American because sure. you know I didn't move to Taiwan till I was 14? I, I speak the language mo probably better than than most um, most most people who were born in the states and didn't grow yeah. up in that in that. So so I think it's I think that there really is a good faith effort uh, on behalf of the editorial team to engage with the richness of the background in all of these cultures, right? Whether it's Abyssinia, uh, whether it's what's going on uh, with, you know, in, in Sandeep's post-colonial India, which is not a space yep. I've explored. I don't know much about it, but I think it would be amazing to to really dig into the history there uh, of what that looks like. And so I don't, I don't, I don't feel any, any kind of ill will or, or sentiments to, to, to people writing those stories because there's a part of me that understands that all of this just comes from one place, which is our shared love of wanting to build this universe and move it forward in a way that we think would be exciting to our community. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. No, no. And, and, and I think what's great is that there's there's good communication, you know, on the weird side when the, the through the breach Obsidian Gate book came out. 
um, which was based uh, on, you know, on the story that I had written for Asami uh, back with, I think it was Broken Promises. Um, you know, uh, they, they sent a copy of that to me and said, hey, do you want to just take a look through this and, and see if all of this is consistent with, with your understanding of the region? And I said, look, I'm, I'm not Japanese. I do have many family members who have who live in Tokyo, who have married uh, uh, Japanese, speak Japanese at home, all of that. But, you know, I'm not I'm not qualified. But at the very least, let me give this a look with with all of the knowledge that I've accumulated from what I've studied about Japanese history. Um, and so, you know, there, there were a couple things in there, um, but but nothing, nothing that I, I felt in any way how our form was was in any way derogatory. It was more just like, oh, have you guys considered this historical event that happened in this place that might be interesting for your players, right, to try and explore this or maybe even research it it on their own. And I think the biggest restriction from that book, if I remember correctly, was, you know, the guild basically stomped all over, all over East Asia uh, in the Black Powder Wars. And the challenge for us was trying to make sure that when we were portraying those countries, yes, they were politically subordinate to to a Western machine, but that didn't mean that there weren't forms of resistance, um, and right. that there weren't, you know, you know, there was a law that basically said that your your uh, that nobody could bear weapons. Um, and I thought, well, if this is in place, how are your TTP characters going to have guns, yeah. right? So I think navigating, trying to find this this balance to make sure that players get the most out of the game while seamlessly blending in with the history and also making a broader argument that if Japan is totally neutered, nothing's going on on the ground there. Uh, you know, I, I think all those things, they don't, they don't oppose each other. They, they blend together. Now I have not read the obsidian gate yet, but um, you know, hearing you talk about that, it, it reminds me, you know, to a lot of ways, uh, what Japan did in the region and, and actual history, you know, and, and what Japan did to Korea and stuff like that. So it's interesting having the guild, be the one that that comes in and 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 subverts an entire that's fine. I'm gonna have to go read it now that's that's cool it's, it's exciting I mean it's for me it's just so hard to imagine uh in East Asian history without the Meiji restoration right the rise right. of Imperial Japan um you know the post-colonial response uh and the and the fact that Japan very much adopted and and took the strategies that great powers have used against it and in order to preserve its own security you know basically expanded outwards until uh well you know the rest is, is history and, and yeah and we literally. know um we, yeah. We, yeah literally right and, and but these are this is my point this is a story that affects half of the people in the world's population at least yep. right and and would set uh an unmovable path dependency effect for how the rest of that region evolved for the next hundred years right and the legacies of that are, are still today and and i'd like to think that that those voices, those are something that I that I allude to frequently uh, in the writing, often using this relationship, this adversarial relationship between Misaki and Mei Feng, yep. you know, to to just signal to our readers that yes, I know this alliance is impossible, but by putting these pieces together, I'm doing that to accentuate just how much mistrust there is and just how much character growth is required um, in order for these individuals to to uh, to work together. That's why I think the I, I think the, the the best piece I've ever written, to be honest, was the was was from the ashes, which was the Mayfeng piece and shifting loyalties that really changed the arc of the, the Thunders moving forward to say, OK, we're going to make this the focus of this faction, not so much about ninjas playing Shinobi on the roof of Malifo City. We really want to kind of engage deep here with all of the rich topography, uh, you know, that 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 the history of this amazing region has to offer. That's cool. Um, so I'd be curious. Um, well, first of all, you know, obviously writing is not your full time gig. Um, would that be something you'd want to happen or is academia where you want to live and breathe for now? 
I, I gotta say, I'm 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 happy with my my place as a hobby, and the Weird Team has been incredibly supportive uh, of my efforts and have has really allowed me to live two parallel lives. Um, and and I owe them an enormous thank you for that, uh, in the sense that you know they allow me to contribute uh, once or twice a year. I have to admit, the third edition year was the big one when, when I was like, well, okay, write an entire book. I was like, ah, it's working on my master's thesis in uh, in, in, wow. in Beijing, and that was. That was fun. That was a fun year, of, 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 but but it happened. We did it. Uh, yeah. And um, but 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 the one thing that I love about being a freelance writer is, I think the problem with academic research is uh, naturally the world is a complicated place. But a lot of the ideas we explore are frankly not presented in a way that is accessible to the community, even though they're really important. And and our research is publicly funded often, right? So you yeah. would think that the things that we crank out should be useful. So. Um, you know, I talked earlier about thesis fiction being one of the three ways that I approach a story. And I like in some ways, as long as it's appropriate to use my stories as a vehicle to explore some of these broader academic ideas uh, that I've had the chance to research. You know, uh, uh, the example, Yoko Hamasaki's thought experiments that she gives to Misaki, the three riddles, right? Those actually were pulled directly from an incredible book called Thinking Fast and Slow by Nobel Prize winning economists uh, uh, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Traversky. Uh, and they wrote an entire book. And it's it's a it's sort of a water cooler book that you can easily talk to uh, with friends around the water cooler. That's how they describe it in the introduction, even though these two people are way too smart for their own good. Sure. Um, I think one of them has passed away, actually. But, but they're, they're the most famous cognitive scientists among them. Um, and the book was all about how humans were intuitively bad risk takers, consistently, you know, made bad decisions about probabilities and ignored things that were fundamentally important. So I thought, one, as a war gamer, this is great. Like, I need to totally get into this. So I'm not... I'm not making stupid moves on the table, but but also I just think it's really interesting to think about how the human mind works when we're faced with taking risks and making strategic decisions. And how do Malifaux characters explore that? Well, Yoko, who is also too smart for her own good, exploits the hell out of that. Yeah. Um, you know, and of course, from the ashes, right, the, the major themes I wanted to explore there were how organized crime functions, right? Academically speaking, how do these nefarious institutions draw in ordinary people who would never imagine themselves in those positions otherwise, right, and become part of a machine and so part of it that they don't even recognize, right, just how, how deeply they've come in. And then there was also the experience about coming from a state that was colonized by an outsider, forcing to completely uproot your home and everything you think you understood, you know, to enter a dangerous new world only to realize that it is just as terrible as the one you left behind. So these these were all ideas that I wanted to yep. explore and, and fiction lets me do that. Well, and, and the term, I like your term there about, you know, being a thesis writing. And when you think about it, I mean, some of my favorite writers, Heinlein, Asimov, that's that's all they did. Yeah. Right? Oh, you know, man. I mean, Asimov just... It's, he used fiction to to communicate huge ideas and Heinlein did the same thing. Um, and, and, you know, when it's, when it's done well, it's incredible. Um, when it's, and when it's done poorly, it's awful. It's a crash <laughs> and burn, man. It is, yeah, yeah, yeah. It is a fine line. Luckily, history takes care of those and those, those just vanish uh, through time. So guys, we're going to take another break. When we get back from this break, um, we're recording this in mid-February, but it's you're probably listening to it now. It's probably late spring, early uh, summer. So we're going to get a chance to talk uh, with Nate about some of the stuff that's coming out and things that we're going to want to promote that you're going to want to get your hands on. So we'll be right back. Right now is the part of many podcasts where someone comes on, interrupts the show, 
and explains that you should consider paying for the content you're already getting for free. They'll go on and explain that by giving a dollar or more a month, you not only support the show, but you allow the show to grow and improve. Here on the third floor, we commit to not interrupting your episode of Tabletop Talk with such a plea. We pledge not to run a spot asking you to go to patreon.com and give a dollar or more a month. Even if there's a link in this show's description, and there is, we won't ask you to click it and become a patron. We won't spend time yammering about the benefits like early access to episodes, getting those episodes without ad breaks, or even getting a chance to play in one of Craig's RPG sessions. Anyway, enjoy this episode. We needed to clarify that we wouldn't do this type of solicitation. Hi, this is Brian. I started listening to Third Floor Wars for information and insight about my favorite miniatures game, Malifaux. But I also get great interviews with game writers, designers, and artists, as well as some fantastic role-playing sessions with some really great players. I've been supporting them on Patreon for a year and a half so far, and it has been well worth it. Time to do a quick shout-out to our most recent patrons. A special thanks goes out to J. Douglas Nielsen, Patrick Healy, Ifrit V. Diablo, Greg Packman, Eric Conrad, Joe Root, Alan Cardinal, Raven Zaddo, Richard Beach, Philip Savoy, Patrick Allen, Third, Sean P. Kelly, Jesse Ravicki, James Can, Rage Quit Wire, and Dacro. Because of you and the hundred other plus patrons, we're able to put out material on a weekly basis, and it's appreciated. So I've got a sneaking suspicion, Nate, there's people listening and, um, you know, for a lot of people, they've they've dreamed to do what you do, you know, which is to have the ability to write about something that they love and have it published and be part of the world and have other people, you know, consume it and things like that. I'd be interested to know um, any advice or thoughts that you have for people out there that think they might want to write and get published or have been afraid to um what are what are some words that we can pass along? Yeah, the first thing I want to say is that the barrier to entry is much lower than you think it is. Um, when people typically think of a professional, right, it's somebody who has gone through a process of specialized training and that has their own standards and ethics for doing their job that accompany that process, which is a really roundabout way of saying that professionals aren't usually just defined by what they learn, but it's the process of engagement and training with others in the same field that separates them as others from, from, from members of the community and non-professionals. And the honest truth is... That is not true, at least in my experience for writing. Um, you know, I didn't I didn't go to school to learn how to write. Um, and I really don't think that this standard definition kind of applies. I think that paradoxically, my quote unquote profession is creating something universal that is meaning to meaningful to everyone, regardless of their background, uh, which is which is a good story. So, you know, keeping that in mind, it's not like becoming uh, a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant right, there is not an institutionalized sort of barrier to entry here. The only thing stopping you is is yourself. Um, so that's the first thing I would say. Um, yeah, Dennis, yeah. De- I had Dennis Detwiller on the show, the guy who uh, contributed and created uh, Delta Green. Oh, and nice. he made... He made a big point in talking about that, um, that the excuse, the excuses are over. And what he said, he goes, if you want to create, if you want to write and you are not out there getting your stuff read, that's on you. At this point, it's on you because the barriers that used to be in place, the gatekeeping that used to be in place don't exist anymore. 
And he was very frustrated hearing people make up excuses, um, you know, in, you know, because of this, I, I can't get my, you know, my work read and, you know, I can't, I can't uh, get my foot in the door. And Dennis was very frank. He said like, look, no, it's on you <laughs> at this point. If you can't get your stuff out there and read, then either you don't deserve to be read or you're not trying. I, I think it's, it's, it's tough love, but I think it's really yeah. true. I think Dennis nailed it. Um, you know, in the sense that the skills required for being a good freelance writer, I, I think they pretty much apply to anybody who wants to be professionally successful, right? You have to innovate by writing good stories and getting used to having a product, right, that that people people want to enjoy. And, and you have to start thinking of your writing, not just as a hobby and as something you enjoy doing at a coffee shop, which I do very much, to be clear, but right. but, but it is it is an extension of your professional capability to impact the world around you for a cause that you believe in. So that's the first thing. I think the second thing to keep in mind is that you have to be, you have to show initiative and be persistent, right? Engage with IPs, find out who's yep. hiring, do searches. Um, you know, networking is always a, a funny buzzword to me because I always believe that the best relationships emerge when you're not really trying to to to, to make them, right? Because because nobody wants to talk to you if you're just calculating. But what is lovely is you know go to events, uh, meet writers, uh, talk to to game designers, people from companies. There are so many startup uh, game like gaming industries now that that people I think would be very happy to have a qualified writer who's willing to work from home on their schedule at a flexible time, right? To submit material. So being familiar with that IP. Um, and then the last piece of advice that I, I would give to people in general is it, it's hard to see what an industry looks like from the outside until you're actually yep. part of it. So it's it's almost unfair in some ways for, you know, it, it is still hard to start up. There aren't there aren't as many barriers, but they're still there. You know, but the one thing is at the end of the day, as a freelance writer, you are there for your client, right? Their deadlines are your deadlines. It is your job to execute their vision to the best of your ability. Um, and it, it, it is on you to communicate, you know, when things are running late with weird uh, I'm I'm so lucky that, you know, as long as I send an email a couple of weeks in advance instead of the night before just saying, hey, look, my other job's got me nailed to the wall right now and I need a bit more space, the response I get more often than not, in fact, they've never said no, is totally fine. Thanks for letting us know and 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 you know we can but, we can but that's a there. that's a trust Nate that you've built up with them, yes. right? I yes. mean yes, if, if you were if you were somebody who they couldn't rely on, the the their the response would be a lot different. Correct. Um, and, and and we condition the relationships we create for ourselves. So don't correct. Don't ever give your employer a reason to suspect that you have anything but the best intentions, yep. you know, for your own efforts and theirs and the IP. And then the last thing I would say is, um, you know, writing always evolves and changes. But I think whenever you submit anything, always assume to a certain degree of tolerance that that is what will appear on a published page. You know, I think your editors, uh, particularly, you know, the Weird team is fantastic um, and they have given some of the best copy edits and they catch my typos all the time. But the real editorial discussions that they want to be having with me are not why did you use this word or can you fix this parallelism? It's let's think about how this character reacts in this situation, right? How they grow, how we can make the scene more exciting or emphasize this particular theme or tone down this other one, right? They're not going to be conversations about subject verb agreement and, and sure. word choice. That's not... That's not fun. So, you know, and, and God, poor Kyle, just just like like uh, Aaron and, and Justin Forum, his first line of defense for all of my drafts. And so I'm sure he's waded his way through all, you know, plenty of crappy dialogue and, and mistakes. But by and large, you know, the conversations that we get to have, the brainstorm conversations we have are really, really about character development uh, and about arc. And you want to only you want to make this as fun for your editors as it is for you. Um, so I think taking that 
spirit. Um, and then if I can say one final thing, um, which is that, uh, you know, I, I, while I do believe that there is such thing as objectively good and objectively bad writing, you're still handing in a product that incorporates subjectivity and you need sure. to be prepared for, for disappointment. Um, yep. because you're, you can have, you can have written a piece beautifully, right. But maybe it just doesn't respect, reflect the spirit of, of the character of the moment. And yep. when the design team, you know, have been working on these, these characters for months and have a very clear vision of how they want them to play on the tabletop, it's totally fine you know, that things don't work out, just be prepared to do the work and to bounce back on the rebound and come up with something the next time around, you know, that, 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 that more closely reflects that vision because you have no frame of reference for what your client expects until you've handed in something as, as proof of concept. I, I totally agree. And I'll tell you, Nate, as I've been doing these insider insights um, and just talking to so many different creators and so many different aspects that create different stuff, whether it be writing, art, you know, design. The one theme that keeps coming up is you've got to do the work. Yep. It's not a it's not a function of talent. It's not nobody is born to write. No one is born to design. No one is born to draw. It is it takes work and it, and it takes the ability to do the work, criticize yourself, absorb the criticisms of others, um, realize that you're never as good as you think you are, but you're also never as bad as you think you are right. either. There's a flip side and, to that. Yeah. And, and doing the work, which I think is fantastic. No. And, and that's the thing that I, I think a lot of people actually don't realize about the process is by the time they're picking a book up at Gen Con and opening it for the first time and reading those paragraphs in a story, you know, it can take an entire day just to crank out you know, uh, a couple paragraphs, maybe, maybe, maybe even a thousand or 2000 words. Yeah. Right. But you get fatigued, you get tired. Um, the writing gets progressively worse as you push to the deadline. So I think it's important to take breaks, do whatever, whatever you can. I like categorizing my projects into different kind of, uh, typologies, not because they're really that different or mutually exclusive or exhausting, but just because switching, you know, at least makes me think that, that I'm engaged sure. in something different. And, 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 and they also, I think a lot of people don't feel, the the uncertainty uh, that one experiences when they are submitting something to their editor for the first time uh, and waiting 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 for feedback. Um, but these yeah. things really they they they're like plants, man. You got to water them and, and cultivate them, and it, it takes countless hours just to, to write a page and even longer to edit. And, and that time is not just time in front of the keyboard. And that's another thing that people don't, that people not, I don't want to say they don't understand. A lot of people don't realize how much creating happens between the spaces. Uh, the time that you're not typing, the time that you're not sitting with a notebook, um, when you're uh, doing one thing and thinking about another and things boil and simmer in the back of your head. And uh, it, they are the the creative process is a fascinating process. And of course, there's a million books written about it. So, oh, man, I, I can't tell you the number of ideas I thought about how to move stories forward and even academic papers while I'm on a run or in, in, in the yeah. shower. But but on the note of the creative process, too, the, the one thing I didn't mention that I want to highlight, which I think is really important, uh, is is just this is truly a collaborative exercise in the sense that, you know, the amazing thing about Malifaux is it's now extended into this sort of MCU of Malifaux cinematic universe, right? In which we now have so many people contributing to this, this, yeah. this great IP. Um, and, and, and I've never felt like I've ever been alone 
in this process. You know, I think That's even great. when we started out editing, editing the work for Crossroads, we authors were swapping drafts with each other. We were given feedback uh, for the other side. I had an email thread with Matt Ferrer that like hit, I think hundred emails and blew up my Gmail. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't load it. Um, and, 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 and then of course there's the, the editorial team themselves, you know, the, usually, especially when we're talking about those linear narratives where weird has a pretty set idea of how they want the, the story to move forward. Um, it's still, even though it seems like it's more hands-off, it's a lot more flexible than you think it is. And a lot of those sure. ideas are generated in these kind of jam sessions where, you know, recently I was on, I was on Zoom with, with Nathan, Kyle, and, uh, and Matt, and we just talked for two hours, um, you know, just throwing ideas. And I don't want to be trite, but it was like, it was like making music. It was this sort of chorus yeah. of what ifs, what ifs, what ifs. It was like jazz, right? You follow the exactly. threads. Um, and so, you know, I, I've never been, I've never felt like, you know, this is, this is something I've ever had to tackle on my own. Uh, and a lot of, a lot of the other writers too, we, we support each other, even when we don't realize it. We draw on each other's characters all the time, you know, random mooks that appear in stories who are not playable characters and masters. In my view, the most flattering thing you can do to another writer is to take another, a, a random mook that's kind of fun and that they've created, but then somehow expand on that person and make them even yeah. better and more interesting uh, than you already than than they originally were, um, and you know Matt did that with with Gretchen and Ludwig and, and took them to new heights. The lawyer Birmingham from the Lucius story appeared in in the Colodi piece. I didn't think I'd ever see him again. Um, so cool. So so I hope to those authors too who who have been so supportive of me uh, that I can do the same for them and that I have read your work carefully. I'm reading, uh, and I want to give you guys those same moments of joy that you've given me. So um, what have you done recently or what's coming out, uh, Nate, that, we're, that you're excited about? Ah, well, I unfortunately have been given explicit instructions to remain tight-lipped about my latest project. But there is there is another project, and, and I think I am allowed to say that I am really, really excited about it. Uh, I think it's the most exciting thing that I've written, and obviously – you know, the past year has been extremely challenging for this community, especially when we can't all be together. Uh, and, you know, Craig, Third Floor Wars has been a really important part of, of keeping people connected, right, through segments like this. So so thanks for all of your contributions yeah. there. You know, the, the Malfoy universe, though, is is moving forward, right? I mean, Great. I am in weekly, if not daily correspondence with 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 the team and 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 we will continue to uh, to crank things out. Although I will say that if people want to learn a little bit more uh, about the Malfoy world and about the, the pieces that I've written, um, you can find everything. Uh, and I mean, literally everything on drive through RPG. Yeah. Uh, if you just type Malifaux into the search box, it will display all of the books in chronological order, starting with 1.5, uh, all the way up through second edition. Um, I'm proud to say that I authored all three stories in the third, uh, the 10 thunders, third edition faction book. Um, uh, so check that out. Um, we have the breach side broadcast, which is a completely free. It's hundreds of hours of free entertainment yeah. at this point uh, of all of our stories uh, narrated with professional voice actors. Uh, that's, that's quite a kick too. seeing your own, your own character. Somebody read back your own stories to you. I love it. I bet. Um, I, I highly recommend episodes 83 and 84, which are the, from the ashes uh, uh, recording. And that is kind of the quintessential introduction to the 10 thunders. Um, so there's lots, there's lots to, to enjoy there. Now, have you had a chance to play through the breach? You know what? I'm embarrassed to say I have not. I, I For wish shame. I, I know I, I need to get a session. And I have no excuses now that now that we have Zoom, right? Um, I, I was in a D&D group uh, with uh, with a couple of uh, good friends I had met in London, and we're, we're trying to get it going again. But I will try and make space for this. 
All right. So I, I'm going to what I'm going to try to do, uh, Nate, is I'm uh, I'm going to get you in touch with two people that I know running through the breach. Oh, fabulous. Um, and I'll get get a little handshake going because I think that you would thoroughly enjoy um, as a writer playing in that world as a as a character actively. I think you'd enjoy it. <laughs> Thanks. I, I really appreciate it. And, you know, it's great to be on the show. And I hope everybody out there is is, is doing all right and, and putting one foot in front of the other. Because uh, uh, one day this community is going to come back together, uh, and and when that day comes, I know I'll I'll be the first to to get a game in. So oh, that's great. Yeah, we're we're all very excited about it. Well, uh, Nate, Nate, well, I look forward to having you back, man. When this super secret project comes out, we're going to have to sneak you back on the show. Really, it'd be it'd be my pleasure. It's it's fantastic. Great. great. And for those of you that stuck around to the end, thanks for listening. Take care. Hey, did you hear that? You leveled up. You finished another episode of Tabletop Talk from Third Floor Wars. If you want more from the third floor, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Head on over to our YouTube channel. It is packed with painting tutorials, gaming tips, battle reports, and role-playing actual plays. Did you enjoy this episode? Why don't you send a link to one of your friends so they can enjoy it too? Last but not least, write us a review on your podcatcher of choice. This helps us find listeners almost as cool as you. So we ended up kind of mixing the two uh, segments there, if you're all right with that, because I think they kind of melded close with each yeah, other. Yeah, no, I think it's great. If you like, I, I thought about a couple things that maybe um, uh, people interested in getting into this industry might want to know. Let's, so I'd let's be happy start to there. That. And let's maybe there, what I, do people not realize about, you know, sort of what's, what's yep. great about, but 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, yeah, this we'll is start, going great. I hope we're doing all right on, on time, Craig. Yeah, we're doing great, man. Doing great. Perfect. Um, So I'm going to start there. All right, I'll bring us back. Oh, nice. All right. Um, so the biggest thing that I want to learn in this next next segment eight is I want to learn. I'm fascinated. I talked about Mar talked to Mari about this, and I can't wait to talk to you about it. I want to talk about that process of g being given a framework and the back and forth, right? So you, I mean, they don't tell you what to write, but they they give you you know a framework to work from and what it's like to write within those constraints um to find yourself in that process and you know that whole thing it was it was a fascinating conversation with mari so i'm dying to have it with you fantastic yeah no i mean i think in general when when i think about how my writing process works and i'll give the usual hackneyed caveat that it is different for every author's and that pe people mm -hmm. should author and people should do what what makes them feel comfortable um yeah but for me stories in, in terms of the process from commission to publishing, generally start in in one of three ways. Uh, and well, hold on, oh, we're not we're, we're not out of the break yet. Oh, we're not this out is of the good break. stuff. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's all right, man. Hold oh, on, this is the good stuff. That's all right. Oh, I'll sorry, I thought we were jumping straight in. Yeah, <laughs> nope. yeah, I can absolutely nope. talk. Okay, I'll wait for the cue. All right, I'll all right, cool. Myself. Thanks, Craig. I'm sorry. <laughs> give me, that's all right. Give me one second. I got in the zone. Um, that's that's good. That's good. I like the zone. All right. Um, I gotta figure out how I want to bring us back. Um. All right, that was good, my friend. Craig, this is so much fun. Thank you. I'm glad, brother. This is fun. It's easy. Well, and I appreciate the energy you uh, you bring as well. I was watching the the episode you did with uh, with Matt and Kyle to kind of get myself in the headspace for this interview. And uh, oh my god, you guys had a great <laughs> dynamic going on because you know, the thing about guys. podcasts is the host's not into it. You know, it's kind of. <laughs> Yeah, no, no so I agree. It, it helps to have good guests, though. I mean, uh, but both both of them are good guys. Oh, um, they're fantastic. Uh, Kyle, 
opened up a whole freaking uh, <laughs> Pandora's box. Oh, Pandora's box with uh, freaking Blades in the Dark, man. He he got me got me uh, pushed. He's the one that pushed me to pick it up, and now I can't I can't stop talking to people about it. It's such a great game. All right, um, so I'll bring us back, and we're just gonna kind of walk through how you became a writer. How's that let's, sound? Let's do it. All right. Craig here on the third floor. Today, we are talking to freelance writer Nate Wolf. Now, listeners that play Malifaux or Through the Breach uh, likely have read some of his work by Weird Games. He's done a lot of different uh, things. Uh, F that up. Let's do that all again. Hey, are you still here? Look, uh, the podcast is over. And you sat through all of the breaks and bloopers? Well, I mean, if you're here, you might as well run over to patreon.com and become a supporter. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast, too, while you're at it, on whatever platform you're listening to. I do appreciate you sticking around. Take care. <laughs>